0: Other universes, other dimensions, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Kaplan. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. And we've never meant that more than we do today. Our guest is renowned Harvard physicist Lisa Randall. We'll talk about how she has pushed back the boundaries of the cosmos and about her great new book, Warped Passages, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Universe's Hidden Dimensions. We might uncover some mysterious yet entertaining new dimensions of Bruce Betts in this week's edition of What's Up? And Emily is back with a new Q&A segment. So much news from around the solar system, so little time. We could talk about the Japanese space agency reestablishing contact with its Hayabusa asteroid probe, after three months of silence, we could celebrate the possible discovery of liquid water geysers on Enceladus, the tiny moon of Saturn. But then there's the big story taking place in the Martian sky.
1: All stations, this is say, We have one way.
0: <laughs> That's how the tension broke at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, just as the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter swung around the red planet, re-establishing contact with its nervous controllers.
1: We have two-way Doppler, and MRO is in orbit around the planet Mars.
0: (laughs) MRO was indeed right on the money, settling into an orbit that will soon allow it to examine all of Mars in far greater detail than has ever been available. All these stories and more are at planetary.org. Indeed, Emily has returned. This week, she takes us back to the ocean under the ice on Jupiter's moon Europa. If you ask me, that primordial soup needs a little salt. I'll be right back with Lisa Randall.
2: Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with Questions and Answers. A listener asked, How do we know that the oceans on Europa are salt water? The only way we can know that oceans are inside Europa at all is if they are salty. Europa is one of the four largest moons of Jupiter. Three of the four, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, have surfaces and mantles composed of water mixed with other things with more rocky material toward their centers. We know the masses of these moons fairly accurately from how much they deflected the path of the Galileo spacecraft as it flew by, and we know their sizes and volumes from the study of Galileo's distant photos of the moons. Mass divided by volume gives you density, and those densities are low enough that these moons must be made of substantial quantities of water in addition to rock. But these calculations can't tell us what state the water is in, liquid or solid, and we can't see through the icy crust to tell one way or the other. So how do we know there are saltwater oceans under those crusts? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out.
0: Other universes that only gravity can travel between, hidden dimensions curled up tinier than an electron, or extending to infinity, and the tantalizing hints of a grand unified theory of everything, if only we're smart enough to do the math. In a sense, Lisa Randall has traveled farther than any explorer who has been our guest on Planetary Radio. Her work, on her own and with collaborators, has made her one of the most frequently cited physicists at work today. Her new book is Warped Passages, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Universe's Hidden Dimensions. It is a challenging yet delightful read, ending with the sense that we are about to open up a cosmos that is far stranger and more wonderful than anyone could have imagined. Lisa, thanks very much for joining us on Planetary Radio.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show.
0: I hardly know where to start with this book, which covers so much. It really is not just a history of physics over the last 100-plus years. You've got the standard model in there. You've got Maxwell's equations. You've got quantum theory. You've got string theory. And all of this uh, leading up to uh, the pretty amazing work that you've done in just the last few years. I say it's not just a history because it actually attempts to help poor uh, mathematically challenged folks like me understand what has been going on in this very exciting period.
3: You know, I really uh, didn't want to write a history book. I really want to write a book that tells about the physics we're doing now, what are the questions that drive us, why we're excited about exploring the universe, theoretically at least and also experimentally but what are the questions we're trying to answer where where are we now how much have we learned and what are we stuck about and you know you can't really do justice to that without going into the background without saying what is the physics that led up to this I mean you know I'm talking about some fairly exotic matters like extra dimensions of space parallel universes of a sort and it sounds almost science fictiony and the point is I want to bring home why it's not science fiction, where the science is, what are the questions that led us here, and why we think extra dimensions might provide answers.
0: I'm glad you brought up science fiction because the more I got into the book, the more I thought of Arthur, one of Arthur C. Clarke's laws, which was that the universe will turn out to be not only stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine. But you don't seem to have had much trouble imagining and then finding a mathematical basis for a very, very strange universe? or
3: Well, you know, it's funny. Sometimes it actually did sort of happen in the other order. Uh, one of the things that my collaborator, Raman Sundrum and I discovered was that if you have extra dimensions of space, they can actually be infinite in size. Before, people thought, you know, after all, we don't see these extra dimensions. They must be so tiny we don't see them. But we found they could be infinite. We weren't looking for that. We weren't looking to see whether extra dimensions could be infinite. We had stared at the equations that we got because we were asking some very physical questions about what you can measure and could explain properties of our universe. And we found accidentally that's what the equations provided. So, in a sense, The universe was smarter than we were, but we were paying attention.
0: You came up with this uh, possibility of uh, uh, dimensions that would not be what had been discussed up to that point, which would be if there were extra dimensions, most people, I guess, thought that they'd be really, really tiny, about as tiny as anything could be.
3: That's right, and that changed a lot in the 1990s. And part of the reason for that was what had to do with string theory. String theory is a very... I don't want to go into the details of string theory now, but the idea is that it's a theory that would tie together quantum mechanics and gravity. But it was based on the idea that the universe is fundamentally consistent, the objects in the universe are fundamentally oscillating strings. One of the things that happened in the 1990s was people realized it's not just strings, it's other objects that play a big role. These objects are technically known as brains. It's, it's short for membranes. But the point is they are extended objects, and they can be extended objects in higher dimensional space. And because of these objects, these membrane-like objects, these sheet-like objects, it really changed the landscape of higher dimensions. It turns out there are many possibilities that we just physicists just did not realize because they weren't thinking about an extra-dimensional universe with brains. And once we started thinking about that, we realize they could play a role not just in exotic theoretical ideas like infinite extra dimensions of space, but they might actually help us understand phenomena, physical phenomena, in our universe today.
0: And when you say our universe, you mean this little uh, corner of what you you and other physicists call the bulk, where you and I and everybody we know and all the stars in our universe uh, happen to live.
3: That's right. It could be that we, that is to say the stuff of which we're made, and the place where we live is all stuck in one particular region of extra-dimensional space. It could be that extra dimensions extend far beyond, but we're just not present there. We are stuck on this sheet, on this membrane-like object. That could be our home. But within that, though, we still have all these properties we've observed about the universe, such as what the masses of elementary particles are, how they interact. And the question is, in this scenario, does it explain some of the mysterious phenomena? Some of the phenomena that we've had really a lot of trouble understanding. If there are only three dimensions of space,
0: uh, one of the conclusions near the end of your book is um, left me feeling kind of uh, shortchanged. Uh, that we might uh-huh. we might have reason to be envious of other other brains uh, because it's quite possible that we live in a little pocket with fewer dimensions than other parts of space.
3: Yeah, well, you know, it depends on how you look at it. It's definitely true that we might be in a pocket of lower dimension. This was one of the exotic possibilities that I discovered, actually, with a different collaborator on JS Cart. But we found that we could be in a pocket of lower dimensional space, even though other regions of the universe are higher dimensional. I don't know that we should feel cheated, because some very nice (laughs) phenomena happen when there are three dimensions of space, such as um, orbital bound systems like our like our solar system. And also we can have our galaxy. So I think we're doing pretty well uh, having th- gravity act as if there are three dimensions of space. But it is interesting that there might be more.
0: Okay, no more complaints then. <laughs> we'll be back with more from Harvard physicist Lisa Randall right after this. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why
1: I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail.
2: We didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in-depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. We're talking with physicist Lisa Randall, author of Warped Passages, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Universe's Hidden Dimensions. Another of Lisa's important contributions has been new thinking about the nature and strength of a mysterious, invisible force field. All of us are subject to every moment of our lives. I wonder how much your curiosity about gravity uh, played a role in some of the pioneering work that you did with that first collaborator that you mentioned, Raman, uh, where you uh, came up with a, a possible explanation for why gravity is so much weaker than the other forces that uh, make things work in our universe. And and I guess you should uh, mention those four forces briefly.
3: We know about four forces, which are electromagnetism, the weak and strong nuclear forces, and gravity gravity is far, far weaker than those other forces. For example, you can pick up a paperclip with a tiny magnet. The tiny magnet competes against the entire Earth. But if you look at it from the point of view of elementary particles and just ask about their interactions, gravity is such a tiny force that we can basically neglect it. We just don't even bother to think about it. It's so incredibly weak. And it's a real mystery to particle physicists why gravity is so weak. Um, where Where do these very different numbers come from? But it's an even worse problem, because it turns out that if you were to naively predict how these forces should be related, you think they should be about the same strength, and that's far from the case. So we have to, if we don't do something clever, if this theory doesn't do something clever, I should say, we end up having to put in a fudge factor. It looks like you have to, what we call fine-tune the theory, to 16 digits of precision. It's clear that something more fundamental is going on, and that's what people have been looking for since the 1970s. What we found is maybe if there's an extra dimension, space time could be so warped, that is to say, it could be curved in such a way that gravity is strong somewhere else but weak where we are we found an example where that happened it just very naturally is, is exponentially tinier where we are so it would be a very natural explanation for why gravity is so weak we're just not where it's concentrated and the best part about this theory is that it sounds exotic it sounds science fiction but it has experimental consequences and within the next few years we will turn on, that is to say, experimenters are going to turn on what's called the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. It's a giant accelerator that will exist at CERN, which is an accelerator facility near Geneva. It will accelerate protons to extraordinarily high energies and bang them together, thereby creating enormous amounts of energy, which VE equals mc squared can be converted to very massive particles, particles with big mass m. And those particles might be particles that travel in extra dimensions. In fact, if our theory is right, that's what we expect. So it's really kind of an exciting idea and an exciting time because these ideas actually have physical consequences that we can go out and measure, that is to say my experimental colleagues can go out and measure.
0: That excitement that you express definitely comes across in the book, this enthusiasm you have for your business. And uh, I love the part where you described your visit to uh, CERN, where they were, I guess, finishing one of these gigantic detectors that will uh, be part of the Large uh, Hadron uh, Collider, uh, that you got to climb around it, I guess.
3: I didn't climb around I actually visited again last month, which was really a lot of fun because these experiments are being finished now, so they're largely in place, but they're not closed up. When they're cl- at the end of the day, you have to close it up so you can catch all the energy. But right now, you can really see inside, and it was really nice because I had a tour by two of the lead um, experimenters there, and they could tell all the details. You know, you have this big thing, and you think of this big construction site, and you forget that there is spectacular engineering going into each individual element to measure precisely energies masses, charges, to measure properties so precisely that we can figure out what was there, even though it was there for a fraction of a second.
0: I would love to visit one of these places. Uh, you, When you spoke in town at uh, Caltech, I was the guy in the audience who asked the question, what would have happened if the United States had, years ago, finished the superconducting supercollider? <laughs> would we have been able to um, reach some of these experimental results uh, sooner?
3: Not only sooner, I would have actually been even more confident that we would find them. In terms of energies, right now we have an accelerator called Fermilab. It operates what's called the Tevatron, which is in Batavia, Illinois. We measure units in energy in units of electron volts. It goes up to 2 TeV. The Large Hadron Collider will go up to 14 TeV. The SSC was going to go up to 40 TeV. Wow. This might not sound like a great difference, but it's an enormous difference from the point of view of particle physics. This is exactly the energy where we know something should be happening. Whatever it is that explains this problem of the weakness of gravity and also how elementary particles acquire their mass. We know that's the right energy range. And the higher energy we go to, the easier it is to do the experiments. So it would have been really great. It would have
0: happened sooner and better. I would catch bloody hell from our audience uh of space exploration fans if I didn't bring up a topic I know you are asked about all the time and that is how this new understanding of physics might help if if at all in our opportunity to uh find out a little more about where we the, the real neighborhood where we live the galaxy and our solar system are we uh looking at any possibility of opening up uh easier ways uh, ways to bypass the uh the the universal speed limit, for example.
3: You know, that would re- require um, re- violating some principles that seem to be at work, uh, that is to say some symmetries that seem to be at work, in, in, at least in our universe. I think what it does is it opens our imagination to possibilities that, for example, if we have this brain scenario, if we have this idea that we live on membranes, then there could be other membranes. And those other membranes would have entirely different chemistry if this idea is right, that stuff we know about is stuck in our brain. And if that's true, well, that would mean that those things are completely different than anything we know. They wouldn't experience electromagnetism, for example. So it would tell us that to explore it, we really would want to explore with gravity. And so that's a very, that's a sort of new experimental technique that's really being started, looking at gravity waves and gravitational signals. I think that's going to be a really important um, way to search the universe in the future. In fact, it's one of the research projects I'm working on. As soon as I get off the phone, I'm going to go back to thinking about it. What are the early universe are things that we can think about that that can be detected uh, with gravitational signals. And if these extra-dimensional theories are right, it's possible they might actually give you signals in the gravitational wave that we might measure. So, you know, these proposed gravitational wave experiments are better. So I think it will give us a way of understanding which will be the useful ways to explore the universe. I mean, clearly there's um, things within our own galaxy that are important, but there are other questions that go beyond that, and that really are beyond even what we can imagine. And that's really fun to think about sometimes.
0: We are almost out of time. One of the most striking quotes in the book came from your friend and colleague, Edward Witten, who said, space and time are doomed. It, (laughs) it uh, it, It sounds depressing, but... Again, you sound like you couldn't be happier with what's happening in physics today.
3: Well, you know, when they say space and time are doomed, they're not saying that our universe is about to collapse. It's saying that we are ripe for some new theoretical insights into, into a more fundamental idea of what space and time are. Um, I don't think I would say it exactly that way. I'm not sure Ed would usually say it that way, <laughs> but but it is interesting that we see evidence that our notions of space don't quite make sense at very very tiny distance scales, scales smaller than things we'd actually observe or have anything to do with on a day-to-day basis, but something that we want to understand at a theoretical level if we're going to get a more fundamental understanding. And that's what the kind of thing we're always doing. We're looking for the little inconsistencies that tell us how to go beyond and understand our universe better at a more fundamental level.
0: We are out of time. I wish we had uh, another hour or two, and, uh, or uh, barring that, that you can come back sometime and we can explore <laughs> explore our universes in more detail. Uh, and
3: some of it is in the book, too, so you can read that, too. <laughs> and I was, I'm going to mention
0: that Lisa Randall, who is a professor of physics at Harvard University, and you still call yourself a particle physicist, right?
3: Um, I do. I, I... I'm sort of doing all of it. I'm doing particle physics, string theory, cosmology. So you're a theorist.
0: Mixture. You're a cosmologist. You're yeah. a particle physicist. It's, uh, it's,
3: well, uh, you know, all these ideas relate, and it's fun to see, explore what the
0: connections are. Well, her book is Warped Passages, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Universe's Hidden Dimensions. It's available from HarperCollins, and judging from the number of copies I saw on the shelf when I picked up mine, I, I get the feeling it's doing very well. <laughs> Thanks. I hope you will be very careful when you uh, are out there climbing rocks, as you do sometimes, because uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to that brain. I think we need it to. Uh, uh, <laughs> after all, uh, two brains you've shown are better than one. and, uh, and uh, I, On the radio,
3: I, this is very confusing. <laughs> you don't see the spelling.
0: <laughs> but I, I, uh, I hope you'll be careful. And uh, how do the Red Sox look for this year? <laughs> I've ceased to be a fan. <laughs> well, thanks so much again for joining us on Planetary Radio. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. We'll be back in our own universe, of course, with Bruce Betts for another look at what's up in the night sky and our new space trivia contest. Right after this, return visit from Emily.
2: I'm Emily Lockewalla. Back with Q and A. How do we know that the oceans on Europa and Callisto are salt water? The detection of the oceans was made with the magnetometer instrument aboard the Galileo spacecraft. When Galileo flew by these icy moons, it detected a weak magnetic field that always pointed in the same direction as the magnetic field of Jupiter. This means that the magnetic field of Jupiter was inducing a magnetic field in the moons. Scientists developed mathematical models to try to explain the presence of the magnetic field. They found that in order to get a field that was as strong as the one detected by Galileo, their models required a globally distributed, highly conducting medium located close to the surface of the satellites. They explored the possibilities of what conducting media could be responsible for this field, and only global subsurface saltwater oceans several kilometers thick fit the bill. No other explanation fits the magnetometer data, but mathematical models usually aren't considered final proof, and in fact, many scientists still consider the presence of Europa's oceans to be an unproven hypothesis. It'll take a mission to Europa to gather the necessary proof. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: sitting out in back of the main office of the Planetary Society in the the cavernous Planetary Radio Studios, ready to do What's Up with Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. The red light is flashing.
1: You're on. Hey, thanks. I'm glad we got a red light out here in the doghouse. I mean, the... uh Studio.
0: Yeah, right. Area. Just remember that. Studio studio uh, D. Studio, studio D. 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 Welcome in- to Studio D. Implying that there's an A, B, and a C.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but D is the best. <laughs> That's right. That's why we're here. D, 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 D. Okay. Hey, how about things up in the night sky? Yeah. Okay. Planets. Cool planets. Mercury's pretty much gone away, but uh, pre-dawn sky, let's start the opposite direction than usual. Pre-dawn sky, you can see Venus. Low in the east, but can't miss it shortly before dawn, brightest star-like object up there. You've got Jupiter nearly overhead, way up high. The other really bright star-like object, both of them much brighter than Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. And in the evening sky, we still have our friends Mars uh, hanging out there south after sunset and then in the west a uh, little bit later in the evening and saturn still hanging out up there also but over look over towards the east more in the early evening overhead uh, by late evening and below castor and pollux the gemini twins moving on to this week in space history we have a couple of big anniversaries i know you're probably ex- anticipating this first one 225th anniversary
0: of Two
1: hundred twenty-fifth. Yes, you were there,
0: right? 225th anniversary. Yes, uh, yeah, but you know, my memory's so crowded. Uh, I know you. Twenty-five
1: years. Life. What would it be? I don't know. Discovery of Uranus by William oh, Herschel. Oh yeah, I yeah. remember clapping him on the back. Yeah, and saying, "No, you shouldn't name it Georgian or whatever he <laughs> wanted to name it after the King of England." Although, I don't know whether Uranus really was a big step up.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: More pleasantly, the 80th anniversary of the first liquid fuel rocket launch by Robert Goddard.
0: Oh, now, he was a hero. I wish I had been around to meet him and, and shake that man's hand. Gosh, he he was an early hero of mine. Cool. Yeah. Cool stuff. See,
1: we're launching rockets, trying to blow things up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to ask? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Moving right along to... Ray- trills. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Venus. Venus only has about a thousand craters on it and you know that may seem like a lot but that's not very many at all if you talk about other planetary surfaces that don't have plate tectonics in water like the earth does but uh, that was the big surprise that led us to see that there was a catastrophic disruption of the Venus surface about 500 million years ago. Okay, moving on to the trivia contest. Uh we asked you, and this a uh, little bit of a strange one, it was during the winter Olympics, what is the connection between the location of the Winter Olympics and near Earth object impact threats? How'd we do, Matt?
0: You know, our audience, they know this stuff. So uh-huh. we were inundated. Nobody got it wrong. Everybody knew exactly what we were trying to get at. And I the hint that I gave, remember, I said that there was a big controversy because of NBC's coverage of the Olympics where NBC was insisting on calling it Torino when most Americans call it Turin. It is, of course, the
1: Torino scale. Indeed, the Torino scale, which is a scale developed by near-Earth object scientists who hung out in Torino or Turin. The set of numbers basically will tell you how terrified to be when uh, a (laughs) near-Earth object is detected, and while its orbit's being figured out, zero being no sweat, not going to hit the Earth, one, we should pay attention to it, Um, ten, you know, make sure your will is up to date, that kind of thing. So that's called the Torino scale.
0: Uh, Not that we have the time to go into this, but I will anyway. Didn't the Planetary Society have something to do with um, a, a conference or something in Torino that, that resulted in this? No? I've stumped him again. <laughs> of course we did. Okay. <laughs>
1: now, the Planetary Society, as you know, sports a number of near-Earth object programs and have many of the uh, neo-scientists near and dear to our heart and helping us out with things like our Gene Shoemaker Neo grants that go to astronomers, um, largely amateurs, all over the world to improve their facilities for detecting and following up on these near-Earth object hazards. Oh, you might be confused because we did have a couple of us, including myself, were doing the luge in the Winter Olympics. <laughs> Is that right? In Torino, yeah. You're insane. Oh, I know. Well, I just say luge. What I was really doing was the skeleton, so I enjoy that face-first concept. Uh,
0: yeah. Either way, you know, either way, it's going to hurt. Yeah,
1: curling's more my speed.
0: All right, now we really have to hurry and so oh, that my. I can tell you that Heinz... And I do have to use the phonetic uh, uh, spelling here. It's Haynes Arbeglen. Haynes Arbeglan, I think our first winner from Switzerland. And we did determine that he's not Schmitten with us. He's from Schmitten, which is a city in Switzerland. So, uh, Haynes, congratulations. You will be getting that Explorer's Guide uh, to Mars I almost said T-shirt, poster, Explorer's Guide to Mars poster. Somebody else is going to win one based on this question Bruce is about to ask.
1: It's true. And, by the way, you can wrap the poster around yourself and try to form a shirt. We just don't necessarily encourage it. Answer the following question. Win your uh, own Explorer's Guide to Mars combination poster T-shirt. And that is, who is the only man who has a feature named after him on Venus? The only man to have a feature named after him on Venus. Go Ah. to planetary.org slash radio to find out how to email us your answer. And when do they need to get that in by, Matt?
0: You've got till Monday, the 20th of March. Monday, March 20 at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Get it to us. We'll put you into the big hopper, and uh, you might even hear
1: your name read right here in uh, Studio D. Okay, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about popcorn. Thank you. Good night. Bruce Batts is the director of projects
0: for the Planetary Society. He's here every week singing in the background on What's Up. Okay. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Back next time with another jaunt around the universe. Have a great week, everyone.